Welcome to BDO's Legal Tech Talk podcast. We're joined by judges and legal professionals to discuss emerging trends, regulatory updates, and the latest headlines. We'll provide tips to help your law firms and legal departments make the most out of legal tech. Hi, everyone. I'm Jared Crafton, BDO's Forensic Technology Practice Leader. And I'm Daniel Gold, BDO's Managing Director of the Enterprise eDiscovery Managed Services Practice. Let's get started with this episode's exciting topic. All right, we are absolutely delighted and thrilled to have on our show today, the Honorable Andrew J. Peck. Judge, welcome to the show and thank you for joining us on BDO's Legal Tech Talk. Thanks, Dan. Happy to be here. You know, Judge, I've listened to so many podcasts where the uh, moderator of that podcast, the host, will go on ad nauseum talking about the guest they brought on to the show. I thought it'd be better, actually, Judge, if you went ahead. And for those I don't know that don't actually know who you are, Judge, if you can give a, a brief background about, about who you are and, and what you're doing right now, that'd be fantastic. Sure. After almost 20 years in private practice in February 1995, I was appointed as a United States magistrate judge for the Southern District of New York, the mother court, as we call it. And uh, I was there until 2018, so 23 years as a judge, and developed a specialty on the court dealing with discovery disputes and particularly what was pretty new when I got on the bench and less so as I left the bench, that is e-discovery. When I decided to retire from the court in 2018, I went to DLA Piper in their New York office where I'm senior counsel substantively doing copyright and trademark litigation, generally advising the firm and firm clients on discovery and sort of the how will a judge react to this argument uh, sort of question. And in addition, doing arbitration, mediation, and some special master work. So sort of the private judging side of private practice. Judge Peck, after those 23 years on the bench, how's the transition be back into private practice? Is not bad at all. You know, the firm is treating me like I hoped I would be treated. I don't have any billable hour requirements. The, you know, the only downside is, yes, I have to keep time in six-minute increments like any other <laughs> lawyer. And I was very good at that in my first time through private practice, but after not doing it for 23 years, I still hate it. Other than <laughs> that, I'm having a blast because sort of I get to do what I want. That's fantastic. And uh, Daniel and I certainly feel your pain with timesheets. It's something that, that, that I've been doing for true. 20 years. And, uh, <laughs> never gets any easier. Judge Peck, it's it's been basically 11 years now that, you know, since you said in De Silva, counsel no longer have to worry about being first or guinea pig for judicial acceptance of computer assisted review. When you penned that opinion in those words, did you realize what a deep impact you would have on the entire industry at the time? 
A little bit. That opinion came about, it was sort of the third phase of my dipping my toe into what we now call TAR. I had been asked to do a keynote at one of the discovery conferences on search. And so I taught myself looking at the literature. You know, I had lived through manual search and keywords and all of that, but I taught myself about TAR, gave that talk, and several people in the industry who I respect tremendously sort of came up to me at the end of that keynote and said, you got to get this out there. You got to publish, you know, this, et cetera, which led to my article search forward in what was then Law Technology News, now Legal Tech News. And by total coincidence, because the way the Southern District in New York runs its distribution of cases, it's not like the district judge said, oh, Peck is knowledgeable about this tar stuff. Let me send the case to him, no, just out of the wheel, the case came to me randomly. And I said to the lawyers, perhaps I shouldn't have, but I did say to them, gee, you must have thought you died and went to heaven because you both want tar, but differently, when you got assigned to someone who knows about tar. No good deed goes unpunished later <laughs> in the case, but We'll ignore that. And, you know, I certainly expected the use of TAR to expand much more quickly and much more use of it than has actually occurred. Still too much being done with keywords and other less efficient approaches to through today. Absolutely. And I'm very curious about those early days and, you know, 2011, 2012, as you were educating yourself about TAR and me being a practitioner at the time, you know, I was just getting up to speed on it as well. You know, are there any strategies that, you know, you employed at the time that, you know, you think are still relevant for some of the newer technologies that are always evolving that, you know, people out there can really, you know, use to, you know, stay on top of, you know, what the latest and greatest is? Read, you know, the legal tech press, whether that's Legal Tech News and other law.com companies, whether it's getting perhaps inundated, but getting, uh, you know, regular emails from many of the uh, service providers and just see what's out there. And of course, within the firm, you know, I learn about it from my colleagues and vice versa. So it's just get as much knowledge as you can. And as you know, many of the early opinions said when lawyers way back in 2006 couldn't handle email because they weren't computer savvy, and they would look at me and other judges and say, judge, you know, look at my gray hair, look at my lack of hair. I'm too old to understand this. And the answer is, unless you're going to stop practicing law, you have to yourself understand it or associate with somebody who can help you get through all of this. Ignorance is not bliss. Just before the pandemic, I was hosting a an e-discovery get-together, and I had a federal court judge from Missouri come talk to the group. And so he was telling the, everyone, all the attendees that were there, he said, you know, it's really important to understand what ESI actually is. 
And as an example, I had a Rule 16 conference. I asked the, the lawyers, do you have any ESI in this matter? And one of the lawyers says, no, I don't have any ESI at all. And so the judge says, you don't have any emails? And the lawyer says, of course I have emails, but I don't have any ESI. <laughs> right? And now that's 2019, right? So I'm wondering, I mean, have you seen, Judge, a demonstrative difference in how lawyers are accepting the utilization of whether we want to call it TAR or CAL or assisted review, et cetera, since this, because I know that the service provider industry has exploded since those decisions. And you've, you've basically fueled an entire industry, Judge. <laughs> Where's my uh, royalty? <laughs> But from the lawyer's perspective, I mean, have you seen like a real uh, difference? I mean, when we think of that story about that one attorney in, in, in Missouri, are we seeing a massive difference? I think there are those within what we might call the Sedona bubble or the Georgetown Advanced the Discovery Institute bubble who are really, really advanced. And they know the basics, they know the advanced, they may or may not know how to deal with the newest technology, because I think on some of this, nobody has quite figured it out, but they at least know they've got to do something with it. And then there's the rest of the bar, who may know that they have emails, but nowadays, it's not just the mega case. Every case has relevant ESI. Divorce case, you know, you may not think of that as something where ESI is important, but the other spouses, you know, email, text messages, you know, social media, though that probably is, you know, cleansed. You know, let's go back to TAR. I fear that part of the reason TAR is not used nearly as much as it should be is because of the cases where the lawyers get into very costly, time-consuming fights with the other side about aspects of TAR, or they you know, unknowingly agreed in an ESI protocol to talk about using search terms and then review of the search term hits without specifying whether that review of the hits would be manual review or even worse, saying that it would be manual review and then realizing that the search terms hit on a million documents and manual review would take, you know, three years after the discovery cutoff in the case. So they want to use TAR but they don't want to negotiate tar with the other side or the other side doesn't want to negotiate other than to torture the party that wants to use tar. And then, look, you know, it's sort of we all went to law school because we were promised there would be no math. And now much more with the validation protocols being pushed, particularly for use of tar, there's math and complicated math. So, you know, if you fear your adversary is going to make you go through all of that, hopefully in consultation with the client, but you might say, you know what? Easier 
and perhaps ultimately less expensive to do keywords and manual review than to do keywords and tar and lots of motions to compel and motions for protective order and all of that. That, I think, is still one of the big detriments or you know things that are keeping people from using tar. The one other thing I would say with respect to that, a lot of cases may look like tar is not being used, but there is more use of tar behind the firewall, so to speak, than becomes publicly known to the other side and therefore reported in the case law. That's a very interesting point there. Let's switch gears for a second. I think we were very interested in your perspective on emerging technologies and just today's climate. You know, one of the things that we've seen, I think, that the pandemic has really impacted in the industry is we have many, many clients that, you know, very hurriedly put in collaboration tools, you know, that are creating all kinds of new data repositories around the organization without necessarily having a strategy or, you know, really understanding the impact of doing that. I'm curious what you've seen from your perspective in terms of how the pandemic has has been changing the industry. The use, particularly of Zoom, went up like 3,000 percent within a short time after the pandemic. And use of that for depositions, for court hearings, you know, of the, well, either of the, it's necessary because the court is closed for two years, or now it's, you know, the court is open, but why should you fly in, you know, lead trial counsel from Los Angeles for a half hour court conference so, you know, many great things about that. With people working from home and law firms struggling to get people to come back to the office as much as the organization would like, use of, you know, those sort of collaboration tools and various of the chat tools have really taken off. That is good. However, you know, one of the things I would say to those listening, if you are recording regular Zoom calls, you know, because you want every salesman, salesperson to be able to hear this and you know with time zones, et cetera, they're not all going to be on it on the day it happens. Don't save it for more than a week. If the people haven't caught up or two weeks and listened to it by then, delete it. Because what I fear in six months or a year from now, and you know, maybe it's already happening, is all of these particularly audiovisual tools that have been saved for no real business reason are going to become the subject of discovery requests. And the company isn't necessarily going to be able to say, none of them are going to have anything relevant to this lawsuit because some employee will say, I remember a Teams meeting I had with my department and I can't quite remember when, but I know we talked about the product that's at issue in this lawsuit. And then you're going to have to figure out a workflow 
to identify which of those audiovisual meetings need to be reviewed and how to review them for litigation. So that's a potential disaster waiting to happen, which can be fought off or you know fixed if companies before they're anticipating litigation go back and purge all of these mostly ephemeral sort of recordings. That's one thing. So as I say, there is the benefit of adaption of this new technology. And as we talked about with TAR, whether it's cost or fear or lawyer conservativeness, getting lawyers to adopt new technology. I mean, the ability to take a video deposition has been around certainly for a number of years, but now it is much more, it's done much more regularly and frequently. So that's all good. But then you've also got all the new toys, so to speak, that people have discovered during COVID when they were working at home, some of which get done as corporate technology. So at least the IT department, not necessarily the lawyers, but the IT department knows that they are using, you know, XYZ product. But I would say there's probably just as much of off-the-shelf, outside-of-company knowledge or control products that employees are using that are going to turn out to be necessary to be searched and produced in discovery. So, I mean, one thing for in-house counsel and those outside counsel that have regular, you know, client contact, make sure that the lawyers are involved with the implementation of any new communication tools within the company. And, you know, you can't just be lawyers of the division of no. If the company wants to use it, it's probably going to happen. But you want to make sure that there are e-discovery tools within the device or otherwise you know, that it is implemented in a way that is not going to be a disaster in the first litigation where that tool is called into question. That's a big difference. You said something interesting. The words that you used before about this technology is fascinating, right? You said, and I know Jared's going to jump all over this after I'm done asking this question, but you said that there was no other choice but to adapt. So I find that fascinating. If there's no other choice to adapt, I'm wondering what point would we get to given what's happened with the pandemic, given data volumes, right? They're so big, given all the structured data that's out there, it, there's so much of it and all of these applications that are, are either sanctioned or otherwise by companies. When's the breaking point, Judge, where there's no other choice to adapt to the fact that we have artificial intelligence and everything that falls underneath that umbrella of AI to go through data much more efficiently than still leveraging 
Professor David Salton from Cornell University in the 1970s when he invented the keyword algorithm, right? I mean, uh, sorry, that was a little bit nerdy of me as well. But but when do we get to that point, Judge, where there's no other choice to adapt? Well, in some ways, we're probably beyond that point, but we still haven't adapted. The volume is growing and growing and growing. We all know that certainly, look, I mean, when I grew up, As a baby lawyer in the late 1970s, it was, you know, eyes on every document in the case. And you could do that because, you know, maybe there were five to 10 red welds. And, you know, even at the senior lawyer's billing rate, he or she could look at all of those or have an associate screen them down. But you could look at it now. I don't think there is any lawyer who would say, you know, I want to personally review every document. Just can't be done. People think that using keywords often badly designed, and that's another issue, of course, followed by manual review will get through the bulk of it. I think, you know, with all the various chat tools that we are fast approaching, if not already there, where there is just too much data. But, you know, if companies are going to use, you know, and particularly where it is an authorized means of communication, not an unsanctioned communication tool, If companies are going to use disappearing messaging apps or whatever it may be to do business, you can't say there's too much and it's too expensive. We're not going to look at that when there is litigation. Now, lawyers have to be perhaps more creative in what they really need versus what they're asking for so they're not second-guessed or any of that. But to a certain extent, is up to the business. If the business is using a tool, it's going to have to anticipate that when litigation arises, that you're going to have to search that tool in some way. That's great advice. And is there a stigma from the bench around ephemeral messaging? I mean, you know, even in my world, you know, being an investigator, going into companies when we see it, you know, First thought, you know, healthy dose of professional skepticism. You know, what are they hiding? You know, why are they using technology like this? Is, is there a similar yeah. perspective from the bench? Yes. And I think it depends on what it is being used for and, of course, the when. You know, if a company is about to do an IPO or about to have a merger, and it wants all those communications you know, to a limited number of people and with the highest level of security so that the word of the merger doesn't leak and that changes stock prices and all of that, that is certainly a very legitimate reason for using you know, encrypted messaging or disappearing messaging or any of the things like that. So a lot depends on timing, a lot depends on 
you know, if you've been using a certain process, you know, for five years, long before any litigation, and all of a sudden you're in litigation and you stop using it at that point because you know once litigation is anticipated, you have the duty to preserve. I don't see anything wrong with that at all. And other than, of course, not starting to use these technologies once you're already under SEC investigation, do you have any other tips or best practices for companies out there, you know, looking to use these technologies? You know, in my experience, they're proliferating. I mean, we're seeing more and more of them, I think, every every year, and it will likely continue. Yeah, I mean, I would just say make sure you're doing it as a corporate decision under corporate IT control, advice, and sign-off from the legal department. And then, you know, it is a business decision. It is a risk-reward decision. You know, one merger that blows up might be millions and millions of dollars. One lawsuit that goes wrong because of that might be $100,000. So, you know, whatever it is, you know, you're not going to turn back the clock. It's like saying you can't fly to Los Angeles from New York. You got to take the train across the country. You're not going to put the genie back in the bottle or any of that. These devices and tools exist. If there is a valid business reason for it, being aware of the risks when litigation hits, companies have to make that decision. Judge, I'm curious, given what you had just said about being a business decision and there is risk reward, and you talked before about purging, right, uh, video communication as well, if you know or reasonably should know that litigation is going to happen, what advice can you give for folks listening to this to be more proactive, right? And also, under the guise of being proactive, who should be sitting at the table you know, in the spirit of let's be proactive, let's know that these are different kinds of apps that are out there. This is the things that can get us in trouble. Obviously, it's the the legal team, but I mean, is it HR? Is it a legal operations? Is it the CIO? Is, should the outside counsel be involved in those conversations? What advice would you give? I mean, it's sort of all of the above and then some more. I mean, that really is an information governance project, which it's frankly very hard for corporations to get the budget to be able to do on a big scale. So, you know, having a sit down and saying, let's delete all the Zoom meetings we recorded over the last two years, that is an easy piece to get a handle on, assuming litigation is not occurred or reasonably anticipated, et cetera. Let's make sure that, you know, we are deleting all forms of communication regularly to have a very clean house, including going back in time for, you know, the nine years of emails under a regular retention policy. That is a much, much bigger project, much more expensive project 
And it really becomes a question of, do you want to start small? Do you want to start only on a going forward basis and say, we'll get to the old stuff later, which you probably never will, but at least you'll be doing things right going forward. Record management or whatever are the appropriate name for that. IT, IT security, legal, the business folks, and that may be different people in different areas of the company. All of that is information governance practices. Something we at DLA can help companies with. Had to throw in a little ad there, but. Uh, that is actually a great transition, Judge Peck, uh, as we were just about to wrap up. And, you know, first of all, what an honor this was. We really enjoyed this conversation with you. How do our listeners get in touch with you? I, I can't think of a, a better exercise for a company out there that's debating any of these issues internally than to run them past you and, and to get some of that legal advice. You know, how, how do we get in touch with you? Tell the listeners how to get in touch. Thanks, Jared. Well, you know, easy. Go to the DLA Piper website and find all my contact information there. But to save you that step, you can reach me by email, andrew.peck at us.dlapiper.com, phone number 212-335-4631. I'm also on LinkedIn, but I have no idea what the citation is that'll get you into my LinkedIn account, but I'm sure the listeners of this podcast can find me there as well. They'll find Fantastic. you there. Judge Peck, thank you. Well, thank you both. I had a good time. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on BDO's Legal Tech Talk podcast. If you're enjoying these podcasts, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe for more episodes. Head over to BDO.com for a list of all our episodes, transcripts, resources cited, and links on how to get in touch with us and continue the conversation. Until next time, this has been another episode of BDO's Legal Tech Talk.